Hi everybody and welcome to another episode of Around the Sound. We are joined today by the incredible Andy Bell, um, who also has an album out today. <laughs> so really great episode, really great chat. Owen, give us some more info. Well, Andy uh, was one of the founding members of Band Ride. He was a guitarist in Oasis. In, uh, sorry, he was the bassist in Oasis. He was guitarist in BDI. Uh, he's also just come out with his own brand new album, as well as working with, with other guys such as Weeping Willows and Andrew Wetherall. And we get to chat about basically his, his we, we decided not career, but lifestyle choice. Lifestyle. Of basically, of basically being a musician. I love it. And it was just, it, this is just such a, it's really just cool episode. It's like, his love, it was, I really thought, because this is really about a, a, a musician's uh, episode, you know. We really oh, kind of yeah. got, we really got into the kind of songwriting and song structure and production and, and um, yeah, this was, this was really, I was really looking forward to this episode. And I have to particularly thank um, Arvine for hooking us up on that. Uh, and Thanks, also, yeah. <laughs> and also uh, for Carly as well. Carly, you're an absolute star and thanks for helping us out. Without further ado, Around the Sound welcomes Andy Bell. Andy, welcome to Around the Sound. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on. It's an absolute pleasure to be chatting with you this lovely Tuesday evening. Uh, same to you guys. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, and um, have, first I'll have to give a shout out to, to Arvine, who has actually been on this podcast the last series, for hooking us up really kind of on. And um, I guess the first question for you, Andy, is I know you're, you're, you're from Cardiff. Would you classify yourself as a Cardiff lad? And then how did you end up in Oxford? This is a thing that I sometimes get quite perplexed about because I feel, this is going to sound terrible, but I feel English more than Welsh because my parents are both English. And I was, yes, I was born in Cardiff, but I grew up in Oxford from the age of one, like 18 months. So I don't remember anything about Wales. Uh, well, I've been back there to see where I was born and all that kind of stuff. So it's interesting. So because I know I know you started with, with Ride in Oxford, but were you in university with them at the time? Because it was back in 1988, I believe, when Ride started. And you were in, I think it's now called Oxford Brooks University? Uh, actually, no. Although um, Brooks University used to be called the Oxford Poly, and that does play a part in my life story because... It was right next door to my school. Um, so the, the, the comprehensive upper school that me um, and Mark Gardner and Steve Quarrell went to is Cheney Upper School, which was next door to Brooks. And we used to go to gigs at Brooks when it was called the Poly. And we saw the Stone Roses, uh, the Valentines, the House of Love, the Spacemen 3, uh, a lot of good local bands. We, but it was like a really good season where we were seeing great, great bands playing at the Poly. Um, but we were actually at art school about half an hour up the road in Banbury, um, a place that was, I think it's called North Oxfordshire Technical College. Um, so we, me and Mark were doing an art foundation course when Ride started. Um, and to be honest, you know, I, Ride was kind of, wasn't named, but we went to art school to join a band. That was something that I knew from rock biographies is that the best way to join a band is go to, to art, art school. school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> was that, uh, was, was, was that uh, John Lennon's influence on you? Because I know the yeah. Beatles, 
huge, huge influence on you. I mean, not only the Beatles, but the Floyd and, and um, like other bands to the Who as well. Like they all art school boys. Um, so like I didn't want to go to music school. I still can't read music. And I kind of had enough about me to feel like I don't need any more knowledge than what it's already happening. Because I was, I tried guitar lessons at the age of about 11 or 12 and um, they never really worked for me at all. I was, I was kind of able to copy what they were doing. And so I wouldn't be reading the music and the, the teachers would get, the teacher got annoyed with me because after a couple of lessons, the, the melodies were quite simple and I was just kind of hearing them and then playing them back to him, but I wasn't reading it. And he was like, well, you have to read it off here. And I was like, well, why have I got to read it off there? Cause I just heard it. And, and there was a bit of a disconnect there between what I felt able to push forward and do. And I was just impatient. I didn't want to bother with knowing what the notes were called. So I, I kind of got my uncle to show me a couple of chords, which I still play wrong. So I play an E and an E shape completely wrong. The fingers are wrong. And, and that's one of the things that has just made me do better chords, I think, mm. over the years. My fingers go to the wrong, they go to the wrong place. But it's pretty amazing when you like, because I think a lot of people um, think that like everyone, everyone at a higher level of music has like all of the skills to read and to whatever. And actually, like I know so many, so many musicians that like you can pick up anything and play anything, which is really annoying, by the way, <laughs> and, <laughs> and don't read, but just have the most amazing ear. Um, it's really it's incredible. It's kind of useful because it helps you start writing songs because you can't, no one can do anything, no one can copy anything perfectly. So a bad copy is not far off songwriting. You know, like when, when I was writing early ride songs, I'd be trying to figure out a Beatles song and play it badly and then kind of get stuck on the, the bad version and be like, oh, I kind of like this anyway, you know, let's <laughs> just follow this and then you end up writing a song out of it. Yeah. Amazing. And then you went from, um, from there, you signed to Creation Records in 1989. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the, the full story is, we, so we went to do the Start Foundation course and the, the term started in September, like obviously they always do. Um, by October, we had our first rehearsals. So we kind of met, um, so me and Mark were from the same school. Steve was older than us, but we, we were, um, friends with his little brother but so he wasn't quite in it yet but there was me and Mark and we um, met Lars the drummer at Smoker's Corner which is another good place to start bands <laughs> um, so at the back of the art school everyone went for a cigarette in the break times and, and there was this kind of James Dean looking dude with a leather jacket on and a white t-shirt and that was Lars Colbert um, as soon as we realized he was a drummer, it was like, okay, well, let's just do the band thing now. And we ended up going to his mum's garage um, one, one weekend, I think, and just had a, a band practice that was the first ride rehearsal. Um, so then from there, yeah, we, we started, it was a very short space of time from then to getting signed. Within about six months, we had done a few gigs. And I think after six gigs, we um, got the, deal offered it was wow. bananas we didn't pay our dues at all um 
we just kind of launched into it and we we used all the money from the first gigs to make a tape so we were putting I mean it wasn't much money but we put the money into a pot and then that was used to fund you know making 50 tapes or something and we put a few in the local record store the indie shop in Banbury that was called Movement Um, and then we sent a couple out to like enemy and enemy put it in their list so we were one of those you know it does sometimes happen that a tape will get you will get you somewhere um and then how did the i mean because that's such a quick period of time how did you end up meeting alan and like was was alan kind of in that oxford area because i mean obviously he he'd already begun to build his own reputation on, on on other bands that he'd been signing but i guess how did that relationship begin? How did he see you for the first time? Well, Alan wasn't the first one. Um, it's it's just kind of counterintuitive to what you might think, but we were spotted first by major label A&R. Um, there was a guy called Callie Callaman who um, worked, I think he was at Warner's, I think, and he was um, has been spent a lot of his, his life working with Julian Cope really cool guy Callie and he was signing bands for Warners I think this may be a bit wrong but there was also Mike Smith um, who was at EMI Publishing and he ended up signing our publishing he was very early on board and there was a guy called Ben Wardle who I think was MCA Records so they were all they were all majors I can't tell you who was the first because I don't know Um, and I wasn't too aware of those I, I just knew them all as you know, there's some record company guys. I didn't know what the names were now, but now I've got to be friends with, with Mike Smith, a good friend of mine now. And obviously McGee is a, is a real close friend of mine. But he, he came along a bit a little bit later because someone told him, I think Callie told him, oh, I've got this great band. And of course, Alan went, oh, I'll, okay, great. Well, I'll take them. <laughs> um, Callie had funded, um, so we'd, we'd kind of like had a little bit of, to and fro with Callie and he basically gave us some money to record an EP um, and this EP, EP that we recorded it was no strings attached it was just the money to get us going so you know we've got to really give credit to Callie Callaman there because he didn't didn't really get much for his money apart from I mean we did we did great out of it he just funded something great that didn't end up going to his label but um, you know I've always felt like he got a raw deal there but but I think in, in the karmically, he hopefully something good happened for him in a different way because we ended up going to Alan and um, he came to see us. We were doing a support tour with the Soup Dragons who were, I don't know if they had that big dance crossover hit, the um, I'm Free tune, but they were kind of quite a big indie band at the time and they were playing quite big venues. So we we were in these big rooms with with really crap gear because we, as we just said, just started out. And um, again, real good, a real kind of good favor from people that didn't really have to do you a favor. The Soup Dragons said, look, use all our gear. And they had like Marshall stacks and proper drum kits and all that stuff. So we came on stage um, sounding about five times as loud as normal. And that was the gear <laughs> that the gear came to. Um, and he came to see us that night and then next night and the next night. And on the third night, he uh, basically said, I want to give you guys a record deal. And we were like, this is our natural home, way more than a, than a major would have been. Mm. 
So that, that's really interesting because, um, I mean, that whole scene at that time, it was, I mean, I don't know, it, did you all, did you feel that, that shift in culture and that shift in music? Because, you know, you had to obviously did the, the kind of acid house scene and I know dance music heavily influences you, particularly in, in, in a lot of your more recent music and, and side projects. Um, but it wasn't, it hadn't quite shifted then, you know, I mean, um, I was never a raver exactly, but Mark was. And um, I think definitely Mark, maybe others in the band too, were going to raves. And um, rave culture was what we grew up with. So gigs, our gigs and raves, there's a lot of stuff in common with it. I mean, we were writing about escapism. Um, We were trying to take the listener away somewhere else. Um, our kind of the engine for us was volume and sort of like distortion and, and chaos but the for for, for um, an illegal rave it would be the, the kick drum and everything else you know the, the, the drugs and stuff like that but um, the light shows would be very similar um, people that people ended up doing our lights and people that worked on on rave light shows and it was sort of like there was quite a lot of cultural crossover that you wouldn't think because the press painted it out like we were like over here and they were over there and no one had anything to do with the other side and um with your debut lp with nowhere coming out in 91 because i mean first like you brought out essentially four albums back to back each year did that did that feel normal to you guys or were you just creatively in a, in a massive high right then or was that always the plan to to kind of bring out four albums back to back we um we had a real momentum at the beginning so we we started making eps so we had um four track ep at the beginning of 1990 and then another one about three months later then another one which was sort of paired with the album so we did the album and the third one together and then another ep so so they they kind of they were almost like doing two albums in the first year and then the next album came out, 92, yeah. So it was a, a real quick, mm. a real quick, um, I don't know, lost the word, but a, a big momentum and lots of music coming out. And it felt very natural, yeah, to answer the question. Mm. And what did it feel like? Because you guys went from like, you know, like you were saying, doing six or seven shows and then all of a sudden being catapulted into this world of, making records in quick succession and being out on the road and did that like was that a massive shock to the system well the reason that i kind of joined the band was was to be like the beatles and that was it felt it like it was it was the same thing it was not not the same thing but it felt like it was the same kind of trajectory so yeah it didn't feel wrong or weird to me to be signed up quickly or be doing you know so we, our first ep tour was whatever 100 people in a venue the next time we went around a few months later it was like 200 300 and then you'd get to like 800 and it would just be going a bit bigger every time but that felt normal because mm. it was all we really knew about and then then it got to um the going black again album the second album um, a single came out from that album that that um, did worse than the last one. So this is 1992. This is like a couple of years after we got signed and we were past the peak then. And then from then we never really got, we never really came back from that 
um, we were sat around and going, how's Twisterella? How's Twisterella doing? Oh, I didn't go in very high. And we're like, oh, right. And then went to America, did, did that tour. And then I think during that tour, we started to, to, I don't know, maybe we just, the friction of it all started to, to become a factor where it hadn't been before. So reality started to set in and all, and all the sort of uh, the, the natural stresses and strains of being on the road started to become a, a bit more of a thing then. So um, there was moments in that, the, the world tour in 92, 93 that, that was kind of, I know Mark came close to wanting to quit then um, and we talked him out of it. Um, and then we decided to take a break. And for us, taking a break meant taking three months off. I remember we was real, like, um, big discussions about could we really take three months out you know will everyone anyone remember us after three months but um you know it feels like a a very short time now in in the context of lockdown three months seems very short (laughs) (laughs) oh god I saw a a, like post yesterday and it was like January February quarantine December (laughs) I was like (laughs) that's literally the year (laughs) yeah 2020 yeah um, and it, like, I suppose for it, you know, when it goes to that kind of fast paced quite quickly, you don't have that previous, you know, experience of you guys all been out in the road, living out of a van to kind of go back to and be like, well, this is what it is like, or did, you know, mm. it kind of then can just get all on top of you. And, and when you're experiencing that for the first time as well with everything. Yeah. Else. Cause you have to kind of adjust to these things that are happening that, that, um, are kind of, I don't know, you're young and you are maybe things aren't going exactly how you want them to go. And then you just have to deal with it. And then you, you probably can't deal with that well. So that's when these things happen. Mm. And um, then kind of uh, want to skip forward to 2014 for a moment. Yeah. Because it was, it was 2014 then when you, you guys officially got back together and did a tour. Is that right? And how did how did that come about? I mean, as, as far as I remember, you said all kind of reconciled before then and kind of had your piece and, and spoken. What was it about 2014 that kind of felt right to, to come back out again? Um, just a good mixture of events, really, just that we were all free at that time. And um, some offers came in that was packaged together nicely as a three week tour. Just seemed like it was a good idea. Um, and that's what started it all running again, really. Mm. And then you ended up doing the album in Hurricane. And how was that? Was that the first time you were all back in the studio together, back writing together? Or had, had I think you and Mark had been doing some work over the years, uh, kind of on and off. But uh, as an entire band, what was it like being back in the studio, back writing together? Yeah, it was cool. I and mean, we did a reunion tour, um, which was about a year long. So, so that three weeks became a year by the time we did it. Um, got some really great shows in there like Primavera I mean Primavera should have some credit here for bringing back the Valentines Slow Dive the Merry Chain and Ride because they they gave everyone in in that scene um, headline spots in a festival and it brought back at least two of them and I think bands may have been active before that but but we certainly weren't so we were like the third or fourth ones um, and we've seen Slow Dive do it and the Valentines do it and just kind of, um, I don't know, someone at Primavera loved that kind of music. 
so yeah we've done the whole reunion thing and then it was like well if we want to continue doing this ride thing any longer we need to decide if we're going to do any new music and i think we just kind of felt it was pretty easy to say you know yeah it's it's definitely something we want to we want to do um so after that tour finished we we started writing um started demoing and that was when we noticed how much things had changed because now we can email ideas to each other and send quite big music files over across by email and and um so we did a lot of writing separately while we were on time off and then we had a couple of sessions like working on the tunes together and eventually made weather diaries and then this new album this is not a safe place mm. i want to now jump back a little bit um because the whole scene where, where it's you know you've got Primus Scream, you you you've got Oasis, you've got Andrew Wetherill, McGee, Creation Records. I mean, for me, growing up in that time, and I, although I was quite young, but I had brothers but older than me, so his in- music influences really kind of were dropped down on me and yeah. that culture at the time. Um, I mean, when you were in it at the time, did you realize you were essentially part of a movement, a part of a culture shift? Or was it, were you just kind of, you were just kind of going with it and, you know, living your best life? I don't know what you were like at the age of 18, but I was very young for an 18 year. I mean, I was a, I was a real kid. Um, and that was the age we got signed up or maybe not, maybe I was nine, coming up to 19. Um, but yeah, that, that kind of, I was a teenager. Um, and we go up to the curation office and I think Mark Gardner was a bit more able for it than I was, like the, the partying side initially. I was very much on the edge just going, what is going on here? Because it was it was all about um, Alan. I mean, curation records really is Alan and his mates. Um, so you had a couple of his his schoolmates. I think he was he might have gone to school with Bob and Andrew from Primal Scream. But then also Joe Foster and there was a little crew of people that came down from Glasgow to London. Um, And I mean, Alan and Dick had a band in the first place, Biff Bang Pow and the Jesus and Mary Chain who they were friends with and Bob was playing with them. Promo Screen came out of that. Um, Joe was sort of the label guy, I think. Or Joe might've been in the band as well. He was a producer as well. So it was just their little crew and um, they were all mates for years. And then the, the other bands that would be getting signed would be coming in and sort of joining their party in a way. Mm. Um, and by the time that, I mean, we, we got we got signed up as they were putting together Scrimadelica. And there's so many stories from that time. I mean, so, so Primal School were always around. Bob was always around. Um, really lovely, lovely guys. They really took us under their wing because we were just so young. I mean, Mark, you can see Mark when, um, when the Scream did Loaded on Top of the Pops, they needed a keyboard player because their keyboard player hadn't got a musician's union form. So they phoned up um, Mark to come in and play keyboards. So you can see him if you click at that clip, <laughs> him with a mock top sort of like mind the keyboard part. Um, but yeah, I mean, they were, they were so sweet to us. And you, you basically had Weatherall um, putting together these remixes um, as they were all, I mean, it was just, I never, and I never went to those clubs. Alan would come and say, oh, I've just been to Sherm or I've just been to Future um, with, the, with the lads, you know, and, and, I, and I would have come up from Oxford on the bus, you know, for, in the daytime, you know, from my mum's house. <laughs> um, 
to just to have a, have a meeting with them or something. Um, so yeah, I, I would have liked to have been a, a little bit more worldly wise or maybe a little bit older, like a couple of years older, to have really grabbed hold of that and really enjoyed it with them. Mm. Um, but yeah. I forgot what the question was now, but yeah, it was sort of a community vibe in the, in the office. Yeah, that, that, you know, that's, that's the kind of sense I get. Any time I kind of read an interview or watch a, an interview or any kind of documentary or something said about it, it was that, that community feel that it was a, it was definitely a shift. And um, kind of then from after, you know, Tarantula was released and, and you guys, guys decided to kind of finish up, kind of uh, where was your kind of next step what did you did you have a plan or was it just see what happens yeah the 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 end of ride did come as a, as a shock to me um because mark decided to leave and it was of he um i mean things hadn't been exactly great we'd done the third album carnival of light and that was a sort of like a quite a grand record we'd done a lot of expensive sessions in different studios and gone to America and come back and we were sort of into um we'd kind of gone on a bit of a classic rock route we were listening to the Black Crows and um Jayhawks and sort of Americana and Led Zeppelin and stuff so we'd gone a little bit like 70s and at the same time Oasis had come out and they were like they'd come out like a sort of punk rock Beatles um and kind of undercut our vibe a little bit like what we, we were thinking of we were kind of heading for this sort of stately West Coast American thing. And really, um, Oasis just made it sound old fashioned, you know, because they were like the Jewish Mary chain, but with amazing songs and, and just with this, all this attitude. And it was just brilliant. Um, so from the third album, we went on tour, but the tour didn't last very long because we didn't get an American trip. Um, and that caught us by surprise. We were like, well, where's the Americans? Oh, they don't want one. Yeah. So you're like, oh. Why don't they want one? Is that is, can that yeah. happen? Are they allowed to not want to tour? You know, <laughs> so, um, we took again. We took a little bit of time out, and we were trying to think what to do. And I was very gung ho, like let's make another album straight away. Don't we don't want to sit around and do nothing? Uh, let's just go in and do another album, and and that was going to be Tarantula. Um, and there was really not. It really wasn't the right move. Uh, because the band needed a little bit of time to regroup and I think I forced it forward at the wrong time you know um, yeah and can I ask a question on that because you know sometimes when musicians push too hard or they push something and it doesn't work out and said so they might break up because of it which is quite common it's it, from what I sense from interviews is there, there was a fear of they couldn't keep on going with it didn't keep on knocking down those walls it was all going to end but mm. Was was there maybe that kind of feeling with yourself? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I've always been like that. I've always been kind of restless to move, keep moving forward. Um, that's probably a bit of a thing I've got to work on, you know, because I, I I never want to take a break. Um, we well, did like what was it two albums? I think Arvin was telling me did two albums during lockdown. Yeah. Chill, <laughs> man. Yeah, no, no, no. That's that's amazing. That's amazing. We're definitely gonna chat about that later because yeah, um, you were kind enough to share your your upcoming album with us, and um, which is absolutely yeah. incredible. Yeah, really incredible. yeah, incredible. Oh, thank you. Really, that was um, yeah. I'm gonna hold that for later. <laughs> okay. Um, but then you ended up kind of joining up at Oasis as a bassist. I think it was in '99, and 
how was that transition? Because I guess you went from, like, yeah, I'll let you kind of lead with it. Yeah, I mean, Hurricane um, didn't last very long. It was a couple of albums. And so for, there was a bit of a rebound thing from Ride into Hurricane was, was kind of, um, I mean, I think it was the Oasis effect a little bit. I was just so in love with that band. Um, and the fact that they had all their roles so defined was so, was, was, seemed so kind of, I don't know, so natural to me. So Ribe was never like that. Ribe was like four integral parts, sort of more like a Stone Roses or something, more like a, like a Beatles type band, you know, where it's like everyone's very in and around the roles. Um, whereas Oasis seemed like I'm the singer, I'm the songwriter, I'm the bass player, I'm the rhythm guitarist, I'm the drummer. It's like, you know, distinct roles. Everyone does what they're supposed to do and it, and it works great. So um, that was kind of the mentality that Hurricane started with. So I, I, I went from the, the split of Ride where I was just kind of left, uh, I felt like a bit like I was left kind of wondering what to do. And I was considering then making my own record, but Alan said, no, why don't you just get, why don't you just write? songs and get a band around you and and he said we can we can do adverts in melody maker like Jimi hendrix did <laughs> <laughs> so i was like oh that sounds good yeah we'll do the adverts like Jimi hendrix you know and we sort of advertise for a singer um so we got a singer in i mean this is the hurricane story now that anyway mm, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but the hurricane thing basically came out of um almost like a manufactured thing but on purpose like let's just put together a band around this and not it's not going to be the kids you grew up with in school because we've done that. Um, it's going to be, in a way, the complete opposite of that. Um, and that's quite interesting, though, isn't it? Where it's just... A rebound. Uh, it's a rebound, but it has a very specific purpose. You know? Like, you, you, you've, you're building it around you, where, like I said, yeah. it's the opposite. Yeah, and it kind of... So when you do that, I think you, you definitely build things around limitations rather than building them around potential. You know, you kind of... Once you put something in a box it just stays in the box a lot of the time. So um, no disrespect to the band because we did some really good music and we did some, we had a great time and all that kind of thing. But but um, something about the conception of the band meant that it was always going to be contained like that. So after two albums, it really had sort of run its course. And I was, I was very tired by that stage. I was burned out because like I say, I just bounced back into it. Um, so I'd had a kid as well. So, so I'd moved, what had happened to me was I'd moved out of Oxford with an 18 month old baby and my, my wife at the time, my first wife, and we were living in Sweden. And I got a call out of the blue um, from someone I knew that worked with Oasis just saying like, they're going to call you. Um, someone's going to call you about, about auditioning to join the band. And I was like, whoa, so I got this call and um, we're talking about like being asked to join basically your favorite band. Um, so within for like minutes, I was kind of on a plane <laughs> going to England. Oh my God. Um, it was the next day I flew over and, and hang out with them and, and did a rehearsal and, and the rest is kind of like history, I suppose. Mm. Um, it seemed to work out pretty well to, to, to play bass parts. I didn't really know what I was doing on the bass, but I just said, look, I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, try playing oh it. Face up and start playing with my fingers, and and Noel said like play now play with a pick, like so vicious. 
Um, so I did that and then kind of realised I had quite a long way to go as a bass player, but I realised also that I could pick it up. So went away from that knowing that it was going to happen. And then I spent the the next month or so with a bass around my neck at all times, like <laughs> from morning to night, just learning all the parts, getting my head right inside it. And, wow. you know, like I was, I was, I made sure that I, I, there was no way I was going to mess it up. I just made sure that I had every bass line down. I love so that I you went for a role as a bassist without really playing bass and then just learned <laughs> it after. Like, that is amazing. <laughs> if I did that with any instrument, I'd basically rock up and be like, I can't do this. I can't even, <laughs> like, I can't even play what you want me to play. Oh, they my God. Put. That's amazing. I mean, I mean also, the, the pressure you put on yourself, I mean, because Oasis at the time would have been one of the biggest bands in the world. I mean, you know, you don't, you don't have to put pressure on yourself, do you, Andy? <laughs> well, it, it just it's something that happened to me rather than me pushing for it. So I didn't put that pressure on myself. I was just I was just eager not to mess up the chance. So um, by, by whatever luck or whatever, I managed to kind of do enough to 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 show I could do it. Mm. Yeah. You know. And and what was because um, I mean your your first love I guess is guitar and at that probably your primary instrument you know, when you were transitioning from guitar to bass, you know, what were the difficulties that you had in that? Um, the, the personality aspect of a bass player is a different personality to, to that of a guitarist. And I had to learn, I just came very naturally and organically, but I found myself adopting a new personality, which mm. was the nurturing bedrock of, you know, like, like you're, you're there with the drummer, you're you're part of a little team there within the band. You've got like a little team who's the, the you know, me and myself and Alan White were like this little heartbeat in the band. That like you guys all do what you want. We'll be here, you know, we'll be we'll be we we'll be home holding things together for you, you know. Um and I'd always be I'd always be listening to the kick drum and just my head was just in the drums and I'd I'd know I'd have the vocals and everything going on, but I was basically um learning to be a bass player like and learning what that means and it, it's a very kind of i don't know it's a, like a it's a nurturing role because it's quite interesting because i think in an interview you said alan really helped you come along as a bass player yeah at, yeah, at, yeah massively in the early days yeah we'd get to rehearsals early and and he'd um just kind of take time with me and you know i'd be saying now can we just try this the two of us before everyone turns up and, and he just took, he patiently played um, along to, to get me, to get me there. Mm. And I mean, obviously there's probably plenty of highlights, but are there any key highlights for you, you know, during, during your, your, your time with Oasis that you were particularly proud of or that you just were like, holy shit moments, you know? Yeah. I mean, just you saying that holy shit moments, I just think back to, um, coming out to play Wembley Stadium the first time, which would have been just a matter of months after I joined. So I joined at the end of 99 and then um, the Wembley gig was the following summer, I think. Mm. Um, and like, to go out to the bit behind the stage, so you're, you're in the open air, but you're, no one can see you. But just the fact that you, get, you go out and then the lights go down and everyone just, the, the roar that goes up 
and just feeling like, well, that's the rule for the band, you know, and you're like, wow. Um, and, and would it's, that have been, it's mad. And would that have been the biggest audience at the time for you that you had played in front of? Yeah. Because it was, it was interesting. I guess so. Yeah. It, definitely with people that had all come to see the band, you know, like we've done some festivals. So mm. we right had done some big festivals like Reading and, and Glastonbury and stuff, but I don't know how many you get in those really. Yeah. Because so. do you remember Megan last year when we were at Tom Jones? So last summer, Megan's going to be embarrassed when I tell you, but so she supported Tom Jones for a couple of outdoor gigs last summer. And it were the biggest, obviously, gigs you did. And like, I remember we were chatting before it and you were like, ooh, you know, naturally you were nervous. And then come off stage and you're like, oh, that was like, it wasn't like any other gig, but when I started playing, hit that first that that first fret, it was like it, it it was like normal again. Like I felt like I kind of belonged in that stage. Well, yeah, weirdly, I guess like um, first of all, I was stressed all day and like couldn't eat anything, and I was like, "What's wrong with me?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm about to oh, play yeah. the biggest show of my life." <laughs> um, but also, yeah, I think when you're up there, and especially when you're playing like with people that you know and you um, trust. And like, I was playing with um, another guy who's, we would usually play in a big band, but we were just doing it as a two piece. And I, and we're used to playing together and we trust each other. And then when you get up there and you start, like walking out is horrible. But then when you start, you're like, Grant, <laughs> this is okay. Totally, Megan, yeah, totally agree. Yeah, I, as soon as you start playing, you're basically, you know, you're with your mates again. And you then realise that every gig is the same in a, it, at heart, you know, whether you're playing to 20 people or 20,000 or, you know, 200,000, it's really just the people that you're with on stage and then an audience, you know, and sometimes the gigs with 20 people are the most scary ones because they're right there. Oh, God, you can, yeah. You can see how you can see their eyes like they're not having it. Yeah. <laughs> the scariest gig I think I will play in my whole life is happening in about two weeks time and my best friend is getting married and I have to do her first dance. <laughs> oh my front... God, Megan. I know, but it's in front of everybody I know. Like, and they'll just be like there. I'll be like, oh God, if I have one extra glass of champagne and hit one bum note, I'm just going to ruin her first dance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think you just, gotta, you just gotta remember that everyone there wants to have the best time and they will like they will and you'll be yeah. fine you'll be great be grand, obviously you'll be yeah. great i'll also make sure everyone drinks loads before <laughs> <then>. <laughs> be good That's tactic yeah. yeah 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 absolutely <laughs> another band and uh one of my favorite musicians that you've played with which is with you've played live with David Gilmore and Pink Floyd. And, yeah. and Arvine in particular told me I need to ask you about this because um, it's quite a special, special moment for you. This is the craziest thing is that I've been in Pink Floyd. <laughs> and like, <laughs> it's just bananas, isn't it? Um, so what happened was we're now, this is um, going through a few years after I've been in Oasis. So we're on like a, a some time out between albums and stuff. I'm back in Sweden and get a call from um, somebody in the management office just saying, oh, you've been, we've had an inquiry about getting you in to 
become part of a house band for a gig for Sid Barrett. So there's a Sid Barrett tribute concert happening at the Barbican in London. And um, they need a band to back all the singers. So I agreed to be part of it. And along while doing this, I've become really good friends with the other people in that band, which is Nick Laird Clowes, who was in Dream Academy. Um, he was the like musical director guy. And then he had, excuse me, Adam Peters, who was the um, who was playing piano for this, I think. And he's a string arranger, composer, who does a lot of scoring now. So he's someone I talked to about scoring stuff. Um, we've stayed friends for, for the last 15 years. Anyway, the, we're doing rehearsals. We've got all these great singers coming in to do this, these uh, Sid Barrett and Floyd tunes. And the night comes of the performance, or the night before the performance, we're doing a final rehearsal. And a guy from um, not one of Pink Floyd, but one of their inner circle comes to check out the rehearsals. And the people, like the, the, the other guys are getting quite excited. Like, oh, he's come down to check it out. That's pretty cool. And then on the morning of the show, I get this call from Nick, um, musical director, saying, Andy, um, you know, the Floyd have heard that this is going to be a really good concert and they want to come down and they want to perform at the gig. Um, they're all coming, all four of them are coming, but Roger won't be performing with the other three. So they were wondering if you would be Roger. <laughs> and this is the day of the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just crazy. And I'd been up really late. I'd been up basically all night at, at, um, at Alan McGee's club night called Death Disco in Notting Hill, which is this club night he ran. So I kind of almost come straight from there to this thing. Um, but anyway, during the intermission, we managed to get a rehearsal in. So I get taken back to the, the room where there's Dave Gilmore, Nick Mason, Rick Wright, and the, the guys. Um, and we all sit around and, and sort of like, they kind of run it in, in the room with, with a not plugged in guitars. And um, Dave Gilmore kind of explains how he's going to count it in. He says, like I count the songs in. So we get onto the stage, the, the gig finishes, they come on, everyone goes mental. Um, and instead of the drummer, Nick, counting in with his sticks, Dave Gilmore walks over and really politely says, one, two, three, four. And then they all start. <laughs> I've never heard that before <laughs> in my life. Um, really like, really English and sort of Floydy sort of. <laughs> that was um, Rick Wright's last gig with Pink Floyd. His wow. last performance, yeah. So that's a very special thing to be part of. God, yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Mm. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just taking in that, that, just thinking of I was in that moment, just, yeah, it'd be, it'd be pretty insane. And have you, have you done anything with them since? Have you, have you kind of stayed in contact or is it, was it kind of a, a one-off special and then, you know, that's, that's it? Yeah, pretty much a one-off. I mean, at some point between then and now, they announced there wouldn't be any more shows, I think. They're kind of done. Mm -hmm. And then um, moving on to BDI. So when you joined, when you, I guess, you guys set up BDI and you then went back on to being a guitarist, um, and, and obviously you were one of the kind of key songwriters as well, how did you find that experience? Because you've... What I've really found interesting is like each different project you've done, you've you've done, you've been a different part of that. It hasn't been where you've been the guitarist necessarily in each one. Um, 
yeah, I guess how how is that with, particularly with the with the first album? Um, yeah, I just had a great time. I just bought loads of guitars, got loads of pedals, made a big pedal board, and and during the gigs, changed guitar on every single tune because I could. You know, like it was just <laughs> give me. You know, I want fifteen guitars on stage. You know, um, from from going from bass to guitar. I think the whole thing with the bass was was a brilliant learning experience, and I definitely. Um, I don't know. I really enjoyed that whole thing. The, the bass playing angle um, was great. Um, but then being back on guitar was also a treat because it was like that was my first instrument and was able to just do my thing naturally. Mm. And um, and with the first album, with different gears still speeding, I mean, you wrote four songs on that, which is, you know, Four Letter Word, Millionaire, Kill for a Dream, and, and The Beat Goes On. Do you have a particular favorite out of any of those four? Or yeah, I think I, I always liked Kill for a Dream. Um, I always thought that was a really good song. Mm. They're all actually. I mean, all the songs on the album are good. It's not just my songs that I like the best. I, I like everyone's songs. Um, like they're, all, they're all cool. And production-wise, Andy, so you kind of you kind of went. I know you're producing lately for yourself, but also for yeah. um, you worked with a Swedish band, Weeping Willow, as well. So oh, did yeah. you did you kind of get into production? Had you been doing production this whole time along with your songwriting, or no. was that a, that came later? Yeah, that came later, and that was almost a one-off thing as well that I just tried out. So um, while I was out in Sweden. And we were having, you know, long periods of time off. I was basically just sitting around. And um, these two guys from Stockholm called Magnus and Robert um, kind of this somebody and made contact with me and just said, look, do you, we do a club in town. Come down and DJ at the club. It's kind of like English music was the, was the vibe there. It's the club, club night was called Bangers and Mash. And they had guest DJs coming in, like <laughs> like um, Manny, Peter Hook, um, I don't know, like all kinds of British musicians, DJs. So I came down DJ and liked it and became quite good mates with them. They um, kind of encouraged me to keep coming and, and I ended up becoming one of the resident DJs there with them and booking lots of, booking lots of people from the UK to come and play. So... Um, the reason I'm telling this story is because Magnus was in Weeping Willows. He was the singer of Weeping Willows and still is. And so from that friendship, he, they ended up approaching me to produce an album. And I, I didn't really know what that meant. But uh, even though I had, you know, been on many albums by that point, production's a role that you kind of define yourself if you're the producer. Like some people are really hands-on with the mixing desk and the miking and everything else. Others just sit back and let an engineer do all that mm. so from from my point of view with them I said well I don't have any real hands-on technical skills I don't have that in my locker what I can do is maybe like kind of try and create a moment with you that becomes the album so the, the easiest way I could think of for doing that was to use the talk talk albums as a as a inspiration and just try and get well, what I understood about the Talk Talk albums, what I thought they were was a band playing live in a room together. So my understanding was was that's what how those albums were made, like um, 
you know, Spirit of Eden and Laughing Stock. So I, my, my kind of, uh, my pitch to the Weeping Willows was, let me get in the room with you, set all the gear up, we'll get someone to mic it all up really well so that everything is captured and we'll get everything, even the vocals, live in the moment and that'll be the album. And they were like, yes, go for it. I think every band kind of likes the idea when it's suggested to them. Um, and every every band pretty much at some point will try that kind of thing of playing live in the studio. But um, we managed to do it. So when, when there was more keyboard parts, we'd get more people in. So I was doing keyboards on some songs and had a guy from um, Soundtrack of Our Lives come in as well and join as well for a couple of tracks. But it was all done. Um, it's such a different experience. Like I've done one re- one of my records live. Um and it's it's just a totally different way of making a record. Like <laughs> my last album took it eighteen months or like twelve twelve months to make and then yeah. mixing and mastering. And then I did um this EP that we did we actually did um with Guy Fletcher at British Grove and we did it in a day. And I was like, Oh my god <laughs> just like yeah. you know, and the difference in that but then it's not like each really offers its own, I suppose, um, what's the, pros and cons um, in, in really different ways. But yeah, I think every, every artist has like a love affair with making a, a live record for sure. But how did you find being yeah. then on that other side of the, the glass, essentially, where you were like making it all work from a technical perspective? I didn't love it. You didn't? I didn't love it. No, I, did. I, I, I was... I mean, I kind of, part of the the clue, I guess, is that I made myself a musician during the, you know, I, I was kind of placing myself in the room with them playing while I was doing, while I was produce, producing the album, you know. Mm. I think I'm I'm much more suited to being part of the band and being on the production side. Mm. I couldn't mix it. I had to hand over the mixing to somebody else. It just wasn't, it's not just not my thing. I can't, I can't, you know, I don't think I'm a, <laughs> Uh, I think of, like, except with my, I mean, maybe with my own stuff, possibly, but not with anybody else's stuff. Mm. Is that because you know, intrinsically or subconsciously within your head, you know exactly how you want it to sound and to feel? So it's 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 easier when it's your own music than to the thought of of mixing it down and, and producing it. Yeah, because it, you don't have to second guess anything because you all you do is make it sound the way you want it. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say it's all planned with me. It's I, I leave a lot of stuff to chance, but but then again, I do know when it's working for me. Mm. So if if my only if my only benchmark is what I like, then I can then I'm pretty confident. But if I'm trying to deliver something to somebody else, like if you tell me that you want it to sound like X, then I probably don't know how to do that. Yeah, which is usually like my go-to if I'm in the artist position asking, you know, somebody to mix. I'm like, I want that to be more airy. <laughs> it's like yeah. somebody has to figure that out. <laughs> so that's a yeah. totally different thing. Um, but mixing yeah. is mixing is an Irish form. Like when I when I look at people, like some friends of mine are mixing engineers, and and they could happily listen to like the sound of a snare drum for four hours, and I. I, I I just I'd run away. <laughs> yeah, same. That's not me. That's not me. <laughs> but but I mean one I mean one of the mixing engineers I'm thinking of um, 
is Scott Halliday. I'm not sure if you know him, Andy. So Scott's uh, a writer, producer, mixer, engineer in, in Ireland. But he got the opportunity to work with Prince, um, which initially was supposed to be for just one gig. So the morning of his gig in Malahide Castle in Dublin, which I know you've, you've performed there with Ride, Prince mm-hmm. um, sacked his entire crew. And Scott got a call basically saying, like, I, I, we need a guitar tech. We need, you know, you know, we need someone to come up here and help. And then Prince liked him so much. He's like, okay, you're going to come and the rest of the tour with me. And I ended up spending like a couple of months just learning from Prince and as his guitar wow. tech. But and quite I mean, similar to your story, Andy, because it was literally the day of. And Prince was like, can you play this? Yeah. And Scott was like, fuck yeah. yeah, I can play this because he's a massive Prince fan. And then it was yeah. just like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I think with those, those experiences, they yeah, they just that you, they're the moments you learn so much from when you we are when you are kind of you've got no choice but you've got to learn it and you've got to be performed the best. You've got an album that uh is now out. It's out today, October 9th. And um so tell us about it. Yeah. Um well, the album is called The View From Halfway Down, and it's got eight tracks on it. And I mean, I guess the story of the album is it, it grew from being a 12-inch to a full album when I couldn't make up my mind what tracks to put on it. Um, <laughs> I love it. I, I, <laughs> there's no big master plan there. I basically had done a seven-inch single um, in 2019 for a label called Sonic Cathedral for a singles club. And that just came out of the guy asking me, he's a friend of mine and said, oh, have you got any tracks knocking about? I'm doing a singles club. People pay for money for a whole year's worth of singles and you'll be October, you know? <laughs> like, um, so I was like, yeah, okay, here's two tracks. And um, the reason that I said yes to that was really just because ever since Bowie died, I've been thinking, you know, I really should get some solo music out at some point when the time is right uh, I want to start doing that and I had started recording stuff um, with Game Archer so I'd, I'd got a little I got a little catalogue there of tunes that I was that I had in that in that bag um, so when the opportunity came up I just went into the bag pulled out a couple of tunes that I'd had like sort of nearly ready fixed them up dusted them off and then they went off for the 7 inch and then after that, I'd been thinking, well, I turned 50 in August 2020. Um, it'd be nice to put out a follow-up. So I'll do a 12-inch single and it can be like a bit, you know, two more tracks, but longer ones and just take it forward a little bit more. And I did that, but they were kind of, the tracks I made were a bit too instrumental. They were, they were like, they're on the album. There's Indica and Heat Eyes, but on their own, didn't say enough, didn't move it forward from the single enough. So... Then I started doubting myself going, oh, instead of being two long songs, it should be four short ones. So I'll do, you know, Cherry Cola and this song and that song and, you know, Love Comes in Waves. And I couldn't make my mind up. So in the end, I thought, what if I just go for an album instead? I spoke to Nat and said, you know, I know we've got a single plan, but what if it was an album? He said, yeah, cool. Album it is. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, I had, so I had 40 minutes to play with. And then... Nice. Um, the shortlist of tracks that I had were the album, pretty much. That was it. So it was very easy from then on. And and with Love Comes in Waves, um, that's the, the 
single that's been out and I absolutely love it. I get a very It's amazing. I get a real Beatles Stone Roses mm. uh, kind of feeling off David Holmes kind of feeling off it, you know. Um yeah. but it's just the uh, it's definitely the vocals reminds me very much kind of Stone Roses, but the um it's just got such a lovely vibe to it. You know, where did that how did that kind of come out? Where did it come out of? Well, I mean my love of the Beatles and the Stone Roses is quite a big factor in that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's just my kind of music, you know, and, and I think I try and play to my strengths and I've got that kind of voice. It's a very Ian Brown sort of register and um, I'm a soft kind of singer. And so I always try and stack up harmonies because that sounds better than mm-hmm. just my voice on, on its own. I mean, sometimes that works if the music's quite empty, but when you're, when you're doing a, a track with guitars and drums and stuff, sometimes I just find that it works better with, with a bit more harmonies going on. Mm. And, and how did you record? Did, you know, do you have a studio in your house or, you know, how, how did you end up developing it? The initial tracks were done at Game March's studio. And then from there, I, I had a room in Seven Sisters, which is just up the road. Um, I was renting a, a room in a warehouse where I worked for um quite a while on this music but then the final touches all the lockdown stuff was just on the, on the laptop you know with a mic mm. nice the final, <laughs> and stuff like not not big not big equipment mm. and, and how did you manage that with, with with all the family around as well it was it kind of you know in the evening time or were you able to do some of it during the day or an hour in the afternoon like now and again i mean to be honest the, the main part of work done during lockdown was was kind of this whole mental process of compiling it Mm. figure out what was going to be on it and then and then just you know making sure the mixes sounded right so just sitting with headphones and you know I, t- I try and mix really simple and don't use too many plugins don't use much compression um so it was done just in the box in mm. the laptop mm. and then it was mastered brilliantly by Heather Kadri who um just made it sound much more you know spacious yeah, that's the one thing because Owen sent me the link for it, and I was like, it, it, it has a beautiful amount of space in the album, which is something that like I love. It's like you're not—I don't know how to if I'm going to explain this properly, but it's like you're not filling every gap. There's just so much beautiful space in in all of the oh, songs. Thank you. And, oh, it's really yeah, it's it's amazing. So where where can people find it? Um, um, it's out today. Well, it's out today. I'm going to give you guys a link to put into your, you know, whatever into our into our, into our notes. Absolutely. Yeah, it'll just be a list of places to get the album. So Amazing. I mean, it's on Spotify, yeah. iTunes. It's on Rough Trade Records. If you want to get a, a physical copy, it'll be in record stores, indie stores, I guess, mainly. Brilliant. But that, you know, thank you, Megan, because that's really by design. Um, mm. I spent a lot of time over the last few years writing very punchy, quick songs. Um, with tons of lyrics and, and sections and verses and choruses. And I just felt like letting the music hover a little bit more this time. Mm. And that's, you know, why there are fewer songs in more time and everything's just got space to hang out a little bit, yeah. which was kind of the idea. But which is which is a harder thing to do, because I think as like a lot of the time as a musician, and as a songwriter, you kind of think you're supposed to fill that space yeah or edit those bits out or something yeah and i am actually going through that phase at the moment where i'm really used to writing with other people and have done that for the last 10 years 
Mm. And in the last like two years since I moved back to Ireland, actually, because I don't have the access like I used to living in London to like pop over to songwriters houses all the time and write music. And I'm writing a lot more by myself and I'm and I'm writing a lot more stuff that has loads of space. And then I go and record that and I'm like, the the instinct is to be like, oh, I gotta put something in there. But actually, when you don't, it's just it breathes. And and that's what I got from your album. And it actually like was such an inspiring piece to listen to as an artist because it made me want to go away and write. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, there's not like that's that's literally the the best thing you can you can get from music if you're a musician is like to listen to something and be like, sorry, everybody, I am taking the next week away from civilization and I'm going to write, you know, (laughs) and that's what you want. Oh, thank you very much. That's great to hear. You're, you're really saying all the right things there. <laughs> well, you can pay me later. So, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so everybody, the link will be, the links will be in the show notes to the album. So definitely go and, and check it out. And, uh, Andy, it's been absolutely amazing to have you on Around the Sound. Thank you so much for, for coming on and joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I had a great. Is it really over already? That was quick. <laughs> I know we can do. We can just keep going. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we can we can edit it all anyway, so yeah. that's fine. I would actually. I w- I would be curious because I um, I was checking out a couple of other projects you'd done, and one I I only found like this morning was Glock. Yeah. And I was just kind of like, holy shit! Like this is. Because I mean, one of my biggest loves is, is is dance music, and um, and I I was interested. I listened to this album. I could, I could sense you you were you, you had, there was more dance influences on on your new album that's that's come out today, and then I come across Glock and 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 you know did the kind of influences that you had with that, and you know there was definitely kind of a bit of uh, Andrew Weatherall influence I could feel from that, and a bit of Brian Eno maybe. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Brian Eno is um, mainly the stuff that he did with with the ambient stuff and also the stuff with uh, the, the two solo albums in the 70s, Here Come the Warm Jets and Taking Tiger Mountain, I think it's called, mm. um, with Fripp on the guitar and stuff. Um, but yeah, Krautrock and like Kraftwerk and Noi can, um, like Mr. Fingers primarily, because it's all it's Mr. Fingers is bedroom music. Amnesia is a record that I've loved for years and years. Mm. I had a cassette in the eighties and um, or nineties maybe. Um, and then I still a copy. The most I spent on a record was buying um, an original copy of Amnesia from the you know when you go to the record, a record shop and you see a record on the wall. And it's just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I have to have that record. And you think, what the hell, I'll spend 50 quid on that, you know. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely such a like 80s kind of German Berlin vibe to it, which I really love. And it kind of like, it made me more excited actually to, to, to have you on today because uh, just kind of the diversity and the range of your, your taste and interest and in what you've written and recorded um because I mean Arvin will like you know me and him have had lengthy conversations just like just talking about music and he knows how nerdy I am so once I kind of send a text as well yeah man that he's he's so knowledgeable it's incredible yeah um but then yeah he, he was actually one of my mentors like oh yeah you should check out Glock 
And then, of course, I was, I just replied back to like, you bastard, you know now the rest of the day, so I'm going to listen to, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's good to hear that you're enjoying them. Yeah. But I those, guess those tracks were gathering dust on the internet for about two years before anything happened with them, you know? Mm. The story with that is I signed a composer deal um, through, through a kind of, just a kind of like, a, you know, a random series of events. I ended up um, having a meeting with a guy who runs Globe, which is the sync division of Universal, and said, look, let, let us take you on as a composer. I, you know, I was saying that I, wanted, I would like to score films at some point. And the kind of music that I wanted to score them with was electronic music, sort of like, um, I don't know, you can think of the examples yourself, but just electronic scoring, instrumental music. And he said, "Cool, let's let's make let's put some tracks. Let's get you know, give me some tracks, and we'll see what we can do with them." So, I was giving him tracks at the rate of about one a, one a, every month or two, and Globe would put them online. So they so every track on the Glock album was uploaded to iTunes and wherever YouTube and all that stuff back in 2015, 16, and literally like nothing happened. And then um, I'd kind of part the idea. I was like, okay, I didn't work. I'll just keep on doing what I'm doing. And then I got a random call out of the blue from Joe Clay, who runs this label called Bytes. And he, he rings me up and I know him because he's um, just uh, been writing a book about Ride for forever. He's like a, a writer. And um, so he rang me and said, I've just, Andy, I've just found out that, that Glock is you. And I, and like pulsing was was like one of my favorite tracks from like last year or the year before um i'm i'm starting a label can i put this out as a cassette and i was like yeah brilliant let's get the tracks together so i gave them the tracks and they put them out as a cassette which then sold out and it became a record on vinyl and from the vinyl they did a remix album so all this has spun from these these first set of random tunes wow that's awesome now it's found its home. Now it's kind of, it feels like um, it's such a weird thing. You know, it's all about context, isn't it? Because, mm. because people, I think people, I, I wanted it to make its own way in the world. So I didn't want to trumpet the fact it's me. Because number one, you know, I didn't, I wasn't sure whether people who like guitar music would like electronic music. So I didn't want to be like, Andy Bell's new project is electronic. Because in case people thought I was just, um, I don't know, just just wrong or something. Um, so I wanted it to make its own way in the world, but that meant it had a very genuine reaction of like tumbleweed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but that was fine because that led to this thing where Joe heard it and and um, his reaction to it was genuine, you know, which was all the validation I was really after was just someone liking it for what it was. Mm. And which is which is a very scary thing to do. Not well, not scary, but like, it's just you are putting it out there to a natural reaction to l without like the power of your name and your history and everything you've previously done. So, um, it's it's quite a brave thing to do as well. But also amazing then that that's found yeah. It's amazing how it's now become a thing that is now allowing me to do this. Um, you know, allowing me to, to 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 funnel that music into yeah. that place now, yeah. in an ongoing way. You know, because I'm going to start working on the next next album pretty soon. Amazing. 
Especially awesome. if we're going to lockdown again. <laughs> There'll be four albums. <laughs> yeah, well, as, as I was going to say, I'm assuming uh, when whenever just fucking lockdown ends and, you know, we can start doing gigs again, you're going to want to get out and perform live. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the ride tour was cut short. We were doing, um, we were in the middle of our tour. We were, we'd done the European part. And so in February, we'd, we'd been around all of Europe, January, February. Um, wow. And yeah, I came home middle of February thinking, right, okay, have a couple of weeks off. And then we started doing festivals. We were going to go like all over the place doing festivals till about now. And then, of course, we all know what happened. Um, but for a ride, I think it was, it was a bit like we were, we were coming to the end of a cycle rather than going into one. You know, the album had sort of been out for a few months. And we'd done the UK bit, the American bit, the European bit. So it was it was the final festival run that we hadn't done. So it wasn't too bad. Like it could be a lot worse. A lot of people had it a lot worse. Like people putting albums out right in the middle of the pandemic were mm. just like, it must be so hard. Does that mean though that we might be seeing you at some festivals next year if they go ahead? Because I know they're rebooking a lot of the same. We're, yeah, I mean, we're going to be fighting to get our slots yeah. in any festival which will have us. If they put gigs on again, we want to be there, you know? Oh my so, God. Yeah, if I, I can't wait. If there's any festival, I literally am going to every festival next summer. Even if I have to do three. <laughs> I'll see you at all of them. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I'm there. Even if I have to like crawl under a fence, I don't care. I'm like, yeah. you know. I had managed to secure myself tickets to Glastonbury this year. Oh, oh no. I had managed to get the tickets. I managed to get myself a DJ gig and I managed to get like... Um, like, I don't know, my, it was my, my 50th birthday. So, my, you know, August, June, it was going to be my 50th blowout. Next year, next year. You had a birthday during lockdown, it doesn't count. You're actually not True. 50. True. It's next year. This 2020 never happened. I'm still 49. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, it's going to be, I actually had this conversation with... Um, just like members of my team talking about next year and it was like we can't see even if festivals go ahead I don't know if it's going to be camping because camping is you know messy AF obviously um but yeah like I really hope they manage to get the festivals going even if you know even if we can't do the camping part but fingers crossed fingers crossed that that will happen yeah absolutely and we'll be seeing you there (laughs) look forward to that well thank you so much guys yeah thank you Andy it's been an absolute pleasure and everybody go um, buy stream find the album um, and you know share loads of love for it as much as we're crushing on it right now Um, and yeah thanks so much Andy it's been an absolute pleasure thank you guys So that's it for this week, guys. Another new episode with the amazing Andy Bell. And what a career that guy has had. Holy crap. What a life. What a what life. A life. <laughs> oh, sorry. Not a career. Lifestyle. <laughs> what a life. I mean, the motherfucker played with Pink Floyd. You know, he, he played Oasis. He's written some incredible songs. He's done some incredible things. And if you enjoyed as, as much of him as we did, you've got to go check out his album. The oh, you have to do it. Halfway Down. It is out today on all streaming platforms. 
go show Annie some love. Let him know. Send him a tweet, send him a message how much you love listening to this episode. And then go buy, stream, listen to his fucking album because it really is awesome. It's amazing, yeah. And, 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 and that kind of... Funny that you said, like, show him some love because actually do. A lot of the time people are like they'll send you a message saying that they really like your music and they're like, oh, you probably hear this all the time or you probably don't want to hear this or you probably... Mm. I'm like, what are you talking about? Always, <laughs> you know, show the love where you want to show the love. Um, and like such a hard worker and such an amazing creative genius. If I auditioned for a band playing an instrument I couldn't play, do you think I'd get in? <laughs> are you serious? Like, I'll give it a go. I can play a bit of bass. Like, oh. Oh, I know. It's so mad. jealous. <laughs> But yeah, guys, thank you so much for listening again. Hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you think. um, And we will chat to you soon. We will see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Take care.